What's going on, everybody? This is Noah Alvarez, and you are tuned into another episode of the My Mike and I podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 119 of the show. And as I've said the past few episodes, man, I hope you guys are all doing well, staying safe during this crazy and wild year, continuing to achieve your goals or chase your goals, but also making sure and emphasizing to take care of your mental health. That's something that I've struggled with lately, but I definitely have to change some priorities and emphasize that and uh, get the ball rolling on some things that I've kind of been putting off. But enough about me. On to this week's show. And before we start any show, I did want to thank Generic Sports for producing the instrumental playing in the background. You can check out more of his work at SoundCloud, Twitter, Instagram, or Bandcamp. Just search up Generic Sports. No tricky spelling, no underscores, no numbers attached to his name, just Generic Sports. And be sure to support your local producers. Also, shout out to my man Vince Correa for producing and designing the my mike and i logo that you are seeing in your screen he also helps out a ton too with the my mike and i instagram page if you're on instagram be sure to go give us a follow at my period mike and period i one more time that's at my period mike and period i you can also follow me on twitter at underscore noah alvarez those two platforms are probably the best way to interact with me on the show whether you have any questions about the show would like to be on the show would like to give any constructive criticism or feedback on the show i'm open i'm all ears for that kind of stuff those are the two best platforms on instagram and on twitter now before we introduce this week's guest which i am very excited to introduce i did want to get this out of the way popple be sure to check out popple.co p-o-p-l.co and use promo code locker for 20% off on every single purchase. You may be asking yourself, what is Popple? Well, Popple is this attachment that goes onto the back of your phone. And when you have the attachment on, you meet someone new and let's say you want to promote this podcast. You want to promote my YouTube channel as well. Then I program it on the Popple app. That way, when I meet someone new, I tap the back of my phone to the back of their phone, whether regardless or not, if they have the Popple attachment or not, it'll pop up on their screen exactly everything that i program so my podcast page on spotify apple music soundcloud whatever i want to program my youtube channel my personal portfolio website twitter etc and you can do everything from a, like i said website to an amazon account let's say you're an author or you don't want to plug your paypal because you have an independent small business whatever you want to plug or have it appear on that person's screen you can program it through popple so be sure to use promo code locker for 20 percent off and check out popple.co also, be sure to check out phoenixfit.com, fnxfit.com. It's a fitness supplement brand with your pre-workouts, your post-workouts, a bunch of BCAAs, and a few different dietary supplements as well, as well as some dope athletic gear. And if you use promo code Mike and I with the letter N, you can get 15% off on every single purchase. The cool thing I like telling people about Phoenix Fit is that with every purchase you make, they donate a gallon of water to people in need across the globe through their live program so be sure to check out their live program be sure to check out phoenix fit and if you like anything on that store be sure to use promo code my mic and i with the letter n for 15 percent off now drum roll for this week's guest. episode 119 features the one and only sara gonzalez of npr now funny story because I'm a big fan of NPR and specifically the show that she hosts, Planet Money. And I followed her on Twitter. And I remember, you know, I just was randomly like sharing the 
you know some of the podcast episodes that she's on that I really enjoyed and tagged her in it and you know she eventually retweeted some of them she thanked me for the compliment and you know uh the whole point of this is essentially she eventually followed me back I dm'd her asked her to be on the show and we were able to work things out so you know I just think it goes to show shoot your shot you know especially if you're in the journalist area or if you're a podcaster like myself you never know what people are going to say sometimes sure you know there's a lot of people that just won't respond to your dms or emails and i've gotten a lot of that too trust me but it's still worth to put your shot out shoot your shot out there because i really enjoyed this interview and i'm probably rambling too much you're like yo just get to the conversation but i just wanted to throw that out there and she's you know she's a very talented very well accomplished journalist like i said she's been on npr she's a local southern california local to san diego county and went to school out in oakland at mills college she has a wonderful story without further ado Hope you enjoyed the conversation between Sara Gonzalez and myself. So when I meet people that are also in the journalism field, I always wonder, because journalism is not for everybody, right? I think you can say that from yourself to your experience. Yeah. What, at what age did you first experience or what age did you first find having an interest for getting into the journalism field? Okay, so, I mean, I knew that I wanted to be a reporter when I was in third grade. Um, yeah, so, like, this has just always been the dream for me. Um, I used to want to be a TV reporter just because, like, I grew up in a household where that was the news that you consumed. You consumed, like, the nightly news, right? Not It wasn't, like, a public radio house. But that's what I'm in now. I'm in pub- national public radio. Um, and so I always thought that I would be a TV reporter. Um, but it's funny because the other day my mom sent me or she, she showed me this cassette the last time that I was home in San Diego. She played this cassette tape for me because when I was like starting in third grade, I would write all these little stories about this girl named Mackenzie. No, MacNeese. MacNeese Merrow was her name. And I would write these little stories about her. And then, and she was like some some girl who like, she was seven years old and she swam around the world seven times or something like that. And um, I would record myself reading my stories into like my little toy microphone. And I would add all these sound effects that I'd be like, swish, swish, whoosh, whoosh. Like I would do all these like little weird nerdy things like that. And she played it for me and I didn't remember that I would do that. And I was like, oh my God, I've always been a little radio reporter. Like I was inserting my own like audio file to like help the story sound a little bit better. So um, yeah. I, I never thought I would be a public radio reporter, but um, yeah, being a reporter has always been the dream. Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting story to hear. Were, were there anybody that you watched on TV that you admired growing up that kind of caught your attention? That interesting. So one, I mean, my mom was like all about Katie Couric. Like she was like, you know, so she was a big fan of Katie Couric and she was like, Sarah's going to be the next Katie Couric. Um, I think for me, I was just always like a writer. And, you know, my family tells me that I've always been like a storyteller. They're like, oh, Sarah loves to tell her stories. Um, And so it just felt like a good fit for me. Like I was like, I love writing and I love kind of like performing, I guess you could say, um, my story. So it just was like, well, then I should be a journalist. What a perfect job for me to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There you go. I remember as a kid, too, I was really big into uh, getting the newspapers. My dad had a subscription to Orange County Register. And so I remember like always reading through like my, my biggest thing was like the sports, but I had a lot, a lot of times read the local section and everything too. 
but were you reading a lot of newspapers or magazines as a kid? And if so, which ones were you reading? I don't think I was. I mean, I don't think I was reading a lot of newspapers. Um, if it, if I did, it would have been like the San Diego Tribune, because that's where I'm from. Um, but no, I was, I mean, I've always just been more like a curious person. Like, I'm still just super, super, super curious. And so I've always just wanted to know, like, why, 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 why about everything? Like, and people would be like, oh, like, well, we recycle. And I'd be like, but why? Like, why do we recycle? Like, whose idea was it that a truck should come to our house, come to every single house in America and be like, oh, there's your trash pile, but then we're also going to pick up your water bottles, and then another truck is going to pick up your cardboard boxes, and then someone else is going to pick up your pieces of paper. And I'd be like, why? Like, why are we doing it that way? Um, and now I just, like, continue to ask those questions, and then I get to do all the interviews and find out why. Um, so I've all, which I don't know if you want to know the answer, but do you want to know why we recycle? Why? Yeah, tell me. <laughs> so this, I did this story recently for my current podcast, uh, the current show that I'm with. Um, we basically recycle because of this very charming 86-year-old man in Mobile, Alabama, and the mafia, like the Italian mafia, like the Gambinos, John Gotti, like mafia, mafia, mafia. Um, and um, yeah, like they're, they're, they kind of like accidentally got the United States to recycle. I can tell you that story later if you want to hear it, but um yeah um, i do remember yeah. i do remember the episode now that you mentioned it from Planet do you? yeah nice uh -huh. yeah so you mentioned too that you grew up in san diego what's growing up on a border town like that especially you know immigration is a huge commodity especially in that county especially in california big latino population uh what was that like so yeah i mean i'm like a total border girl definitely um and i think that they're like anytime I meet someone else that's from a border town or at least the San Diego Tijuana border, I'm like, we just have such a different experience than anyone else in the country. You know, like we cross the border all the time. Like if it's Sunday and you want to go get tacos, you cross the border. Like if it's just lunch, like you just cross the border and get tacos. Um, and, you know, when you're like 13 years old, 14 years old, 15 years old, you cross the border on like a Friday night with your friends to go to clubs. Like we were going to clubs in Tijuana when we were 15 years old and 16 years old, you know, like it's crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think being a border girl is like, you know, I was definitely raised on both sides for, for a little bit of time. I was in, I lived in um, Rosarito, which is like right next to Tijuana. Um, but for the most part, you know, raised, born and raised in San Diego. Um, but, like, I didn't know that I was having a unique experience when I was growing up here. I didn't know that there was, like, anything special at all about my life. And it wasn't until I left San Diego when I went to college in Oakland, California, that I was like, oh, I'm a border girl. And like, that's a very different thing than other things. Um, and also, like, you know, when I got older is when I started to realize the problems with immigration and um, like the experiences of immigrant, like immigrants in this country. Um, so one of the first like beats, I guess, that I was on as a journalist was after college when I came back to San Diego for a little bit and I was essentially covering the border. Like not, I wasn't like the border reporter, but I just gravitated towards those stories. Um, 
Yeah. And and still to this day, every time I hear coverage of the border, I'm always like, that's not how you should do that story. Like you have to, I, I just I just feel like you have to be born and raised on that border in order to really understand that border. Um, and so I get frustrated still to this day with with the coverage. Like it never feels like it's right to me. To right. Me. It's like all about yeah. rep- representation, right? I know I work with the kids in after school program to where in the city near Beering where I live. But that's a big thing that I have a conversation with my friends is that a lot of our like teachers, at least mine growing up are all white. Like, so it's different to have like a Latino teaching you or if you're an African-American or a black student to have a black teacher or a black principal kind of representing you. And it's the same thing for, you know, reporting as far as especially like a very it's a very niche field of reporting and very niche field of journalism. So I feel like that's a, you mean like you were like born into that. So that was like a very, it's nice that you were able to just kind of hop in and do some stories about that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because like, so I, I had like very diverse teachers in high school and middle school and probably not elementary school. I think my elementary, my elementary school teachers were, I think all white. Um, but I, I had a lot because like San Diego is like a very diverse community and so we have like a little bit of everything and my schools were a little bit of everything my teachers were a little bit of everything but definitely once I got into journalism I was for a very long time felt like I was the only one with my background and and I was like I was the only Mexican slash Latina in my newsroom the first time and the second time, like, you know, every job that I had, I'd be like, oh, okay, it's just me, I guess, whatever, you know. Um, And everyone around me just had a very different upbringing. Like when I left California after college, um, everyone that I worked with, everyone that was around me, like their parents went to college and their grandparents went to college. And it'd be like, your grandma went to college? Like, I don't know anyone whose grandma went to college. Like, it was just so crazy for me to think that there were all these, like, 90-year-olds who went to college because, like, my 90-year-old grandmas and grandpas were not doing that in San Diego and Tijuana. Like, that that was just not... Um, I just didn't have any... Like, I couldn't even imagine that, like, people were going to college for that long. It just felt like such a new thing to me, which is crazy because, like, of course, people had been going to college since, like, forever. Um, But, yeah, so it's it's definitely a problem still. Like, there's just not enough people of color in journalism. Um, And there are very, very few Latinos in journalism also, you know, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's yeah. interesting. Are you a first generation college uh, graduate? Yeah, sure am. Nice. How about you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, same here. And like what you were saying earlier is like my grandparents were growing up on the ranch in like Michoacan and Guanajuato. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like they, that to hear someone also have like grandparents and went to college is like, wow, like I forgot that's a thing in other households yeah. across the country. And so it's just, a, but it's a bigger deal for us. I know, you know, when I graduated from Sacramento State, my grandparents, you know, flew up there. I had uncles oh, and aunts drove up there. Yeah, and it was it was a really That's big awesome. moment because I know, like, you know, my mom came here at a really young age. My dad was born here. But I know, like, all of them had so much sacrifices. None of them had any college experience. And I just, you know, knew what it meant to them. And there was definitely points where I was like, why am I going to college? Like, you know, I, I kind of found, found myself a little bit lost going to school, and I felt like I was pressured. 
but I was glad I was able to do this, find journalism as kind of like the career outlet I wanted to choose. And yeah, it was, it's just such a privilege, but in other households, it's just like a common thing where it's like, yeah, this is just what we do, you know? And, and I have yeah. met people like that through college and through other networking and other events that I've met people from generational wealth or generational backgrounds with more education. And it's just, it's crazy to see, but we're, we're very, like us, like Mexican immigrants or people who are first generation, second generation, we're very, I don't want to say behind, but we're very, on the timeline, I guess we're behind on that kind of stuff. Well, it's interesting because, okay, there was this janitor at my at my current job that I haven't seen for a while because of the pandemic. Um, he was Latino, not Mexican, but Latino. And he said something to me like about how his son was at Columbia, like medical school, and how his other son was like a lawyer. And he was like, you know, the thing about Latinos is like, we haven't been here. I mean, we've been here for a while, but he was like, you know, there's not like our grandparents are sort of like the first ones sort of that came here. Um, well, maybe that's not true. I mean, that came here once it was like before like California, before when Mexico was just Mexico. Yeah, you know what I mean. Okay. Um, but he was like, you know, we haven't been here for that long. And like, maybe I'm a janitor, but like my son's going to be a doctor. Like, it's very short. It's not like my son, 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 son. You know, it's like my kids are going to be doctors and then their kids are going to have like a totally different upbringing. And it's so true. Like, I, I see like all of the, like, you know, I have friends who are undocumented and, um, even like people who I don't know that I just like hear about people who are undocumented who like are now lawyers and they're like undocumented lawyers. And you're just like, how did you do that? Like, how did you even navigate applying to college, applying for financial aid, not missing the deadlines? Like it is very like looking back, it's it's incredible that like any of us even did it. You know, like so many of my friends would be like, oh, my parents applied to college for me. Like I wrote my personal statement, but like they filled out the application. And I was like, what? I was like at the library after school, like doing it myself, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's it, like I, it's very um, I feel very optimistic about where our people will be, you know. Yeah, it's like a step in the right direction because now it'll yeah. be easier if we plan on ever having kids in the future generations, even if we don't have kids like a niece or nephew, because we have that experience now, it's like, hey, I know how to apply to the Cal State system. Hey, I know how to apply to this. I went to the I went community college first. So I was like, hey, I can kind of give them that experience and that outlook. Yeah. And it's just kind of kind of be easier for generation and generation to where hopefully our grandkids or that generation is just a lot easier and it's just a normal thing. And it's, you know, we have a lot more resources and that's another thing too. Like I, I like doing this podcast cause I get to build a network and hopefully connect people with not only for myself, but like if I, I do plan on having kids, you know, whenever it does happen, but hopefully I can connect them to whatever career path, whatever they want to get into music, be a doctor, mm -hmm. lawyer, just have different friends in different areas so they can kind of know where to go about and what the process and the steps going to look like. Right. Mm -hmm. Your lighting is so much better than my lighting. And I'm in like my makeshift recording studio closet and you're just in the living room. I wish I would have done that. <laughs> we just got to make this do is how we, we record our, our shows, like okay. padded walls. So mm -hmm. I just assumed I would do it this way. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of your show, Planet Money and NPR, how has things changed due to the pandemic and due to quarantine? You mentioned that you're back home earlier uh, before we started recording. But how has that changed as far as you going out and getting stories for the show? I mean, it's so different. Um, so, okay. So when I, when the pandemic first hit, 
Um, I live in New York, but I left New York pretty quickly because I was like, I'm just going to go somewhere where there's a little bit more space where you can like walk around and not bump into 10,000 people. Um, And we were doing a lot of our stories, like phone interviews, video interviews. And my editor and I were having a conversation and we were like, you know, there's like this really stark inequality. Like there's like the people who get to stay home in the comfort and safety of their little like sanitized home. And then there are people who are just like going out into the world constantly every day for their job, putting their actual lives at risk, even just like the people who are delivering our packages that you keep ordering or, you know, whatever. And it just felt very um, unfair. And I was like, yeah, I really want to do a story about how there's this like very obvious divide. There's like the people who get to be in their little perfect little bubbles and they tend to be people who went to college and have like what they call white collar jobs, which I hate that word, but term, but whatever. Um, And then there's people who like don't. Right. And so we wanted to do a story about that divide. And I was like, well, we can't do that story with me sitting in my like living room in my safety bubble, right? Like I have to go out into the real world. And so I went and interviewed a bunch of grocery store workers in North Carolina and they were all Latinas. Well, they were all women, all people of color, mostly Latinas. Um, And I just spent like a morning with them, like at the grocery store, you know, they being a grocery store worker is generally a pretty safe job, but right now it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world um, and they don't get paid a lot of money for it. Um, And so I spent a morning with them and I, um, after I, you know, was interviewing them like in person, you know, I'd give, give, you know, put the microphone up to my mouth and then put it to their mouth. And then I came home like no big deal. And then immediately I was like, oh my God, like I wasn't wearing a mask. I was like right next to them. There was like people all around me not wearing masks. And I had this like, I mean, I was not okay. I was like freaking out. Like I was like, I have it. I was like hallucinating symptoms. It was like, and and I just, it felt so much more real how lucky I guess I am and how like unlucky, you know, the workers are that they have to be in this situation. Um, and I just kept calling the the girls that I was with and I'd be like, Yesenia Fatima, I don't know how you do it. Like, I'm freaking out. And they're like, I don't have any symptoms. Like, calm down. Like, they were like calming me down and it was just so unfair. Anyways, so um, there was like that whole initial thing. Yesterday, I went to a, a restaurant and interviewed people in person again. Um, and I was a little bit less nervous, but I wore a mask the whole time. They wore a mask the whole time. Um, and so it felt a little different. Um, but yeah, it's 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 certainly like we're a show that likes to bring people to different places and introduce you to people and things. And usually we go in person to these places and we meet people and we spend hours and hours with them to give you this like whole picture of a full person where you feel like you know them and you don't just know the thing that they're talking about like you know them like you know Noah Alvarez like you know like what he likes and what he doesn't like and you know his sense of humor and things like that and and now it's just we still try to do that but it's different Um, and then we're just like constantly doing stories right like there's just like no time to stop no time to breathe you're just like constantly reporting right and that's like the that's the life of a journalist too is you know especially when this thing is it's worldwide obviously but in the country that we live in too there's so many news like dropping every week 
every day. But it's like kind of your job as a journalist to kind of go and report the different fields. I'm not sure if you were on this episode, but I do remember the Planet Money episode where they talked about the farmers in California. And I forgot what city it was. It might have been like Visalia or something like that. But where, you know, the immigrant workers that come from Mexico, they usually stay like 20 people in a house. And they talked about how like they don't really use like they don't they aren't the cleanest situations because they try and conserve water. And something like that. So I just remember like, even yeah, that like, was that, my episode. Okay. Yeah. So that was at the beginning yeah. <laughs> of quarantine. That was one of the first few episodes that you guys put out after um, you know, the pandemic hit and kind of shut everything down. And you just think about stuff like that and how it affects our grocery stores. I mean, we're very lucky to live in the city and we go to the grocery market and they have the meat and they have the cheese and the bread and it's just nice and select, but someone has to put that there and someone has to pick the fruits from the trees. And, you know, it, it's just different to, like you said earlier about the grocery store workers, like, they just got to put their head down and do it because they're essential workers. And a lot of other people have the benefit of, well, not honestly benefit because some people did get laid off or furloughed and lo- lost their job. Wait, but, you just cut out for me. But I was just saying but how. I'm sorry about that. You just cut out. Okay. What were you saying? I was just saying how it's different for, like you said earlier, the essential workers, they just got to put their head, head down and continue to go to work throughout everything that's going on. And, you know, it is very scary times. And I feel like, at least me too. Like, I, you know, I work with the school district and so we were sent home, but we still got paid and I was very fortunate for that. But there's some people who had to work through very extreme conditions and they might've been scared too, but that's their livelihood. They had no other choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like with the exception of wheat and corn, all of our fruits and vegetables are picked by hand. Like machines don't know how to like delicately pluck a raspberry from the vine without like smashing the raspberry, right? And so everything we eat is like requires people and Americans don't like to, white Americans don't like to do the job of a farm worker. It's like very, very, very hard work. And so most of them are you know, Latinos, and a lot of them come from other from Mexico. Um, and so if they get sick, that's like a real problem for them, but also for the country. Like, you know, and farm worker conditions have always been a problem. And so the coronavirus just kind of helped some people who maybe hadn't thought about it before be like, oh, hmm, maybe we should do something about those like really unsafe, unhealthy working conditions so that we can protect our food supply if not for like because we care about workers you know yeah so i know recently sticking with planet money i forgot what episode it was but i believe it was either this week or last week they had an episode where they talked about the unreleased episode that you did with another planet money host how you guys Mm -hmm. were talking about uh 19 and what it could potentially mean but then literally like the next day it seemed outdated because everything got shut down from sports leagues to school districts. When you were recording that episode, did you have kind of a feeling that it would last this long or what kind of were some of your thoughts at the early stages of COVID-19 and hearing about that? Oh my God. So the very first COVID story that I did was, oh, I don't remember what day. It would have been in February. Yeah, it would have been in February. And I was like, hey, there's like that thing going on in China. Like, maybe we should do this story about like vaccines and like when we started vaccinating people and like how like just some, some, something about the vaccine industry. And everyone was like, yeah, I mean, I guess we could do it. It's like a it's not really like a U.S. thing, but like, sure, I guess. Um, and so I had done this story before it was even like 
before the virus had hit the United States. And um, and then after that, it was like everything we've done since. You know, I mean, we do non-COVID stories, too, just because some people are like, please give us a break. Like, bring back some of the regular stories that you normally do. And so um, we've gotten to do some of those, too, which is which is good, because um, some of them are like really cool stories that we wanted people to hear. And we were like, are they ever going to hear this awesome story from when, like, I went to Oklahoma? Um uh, but yeah, I mean, it was the ver- the first like three months. It was just like insane. Go, 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 go. And it was just like, you know, we're an explanatory podcast. So we like to explain things that are going on in the economy. And it's weird because like I was not an economics reporter before I came to Planet Money. And I didn't think that I would be interested in doing this kind of reporting And then I got to Planet Money and I realized like, wow, every single thing is a story about the economy. Like everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, like money is everywhere and everything is about money, you know, Um, and we're Planet Money, you know. So um, it uh, we when the like pandemic hit the beginning couple of months, we were just like explaining things that seemed kind of simple, you know, like there was the two trillion dollar care package to you know help with everything and we were like where where did this two trillion dollars even come from like how do you even imagine two trillion dollars like you know and back in the day you'd be like oh yeah the government printed two trillion extra dollars but like now no one prints money they just like add a couple extra zeros onto the computer and they're like okay now there's two trillion dollars it's just like this imaginary thing now you know um but so we were just like explaining little things like that. And then it got to like um, more, um, you know, like there's this debate about like when you should reopen the economy. And people are like, it is bad. It's hurting the economy. It's hurting jobs to keep people, you know, home and not working. And there's like a mathematical equation that economists use all the time to determine how many lives are worth saving and how many are not worth saving. So like it sounds really sad and it sounds really gross, but basically economists and people make the decision that not everyone's life is worth saving all the time, right? Like we let people drive cars. If you didn't drive cars, there would be no car accidents and no car deaths. If we didn't let Americans drive cars, no one would die in a car accident. Um, But then we wouldn't be able to get our goods and services as quickly as we need them. And we wouldn't be able to get to work as quickly as we want to or need to. Um, And so it would slow things down. So we basically say like, all right, some people should die every year in car accidents so that we can get our goods and services. Um, And so we basically use that math formula um, to figure out, I mean, economists did this to figure out like, is shutting down the economy worth it? Um, And the way they do it, just to like kind of finish the explanation, is basically they say like one human life is worth a certain amount of money. So they say like, okay, and that money, according to federal agencies, is about $10 million. So they say like, okay, one human life is worth about $10 million. So if $1 billion worth of lives are lost because they died, like how much money are we Like, what's the effect on the economy? If the effect on the economy is more than a billion dollars, then it's not worth it to save them. But if it's less than a billion dollars, then it is worth it to save them. And so we should keep it shut down. It's it's something like that. Um, But yeah, it's kind of things that you wouldn't ever think about. Mm -hmm. 
That's what's interesting that this quarantine brought into the conversation for a lot of different things, not just with your podcast, but I feel like I'm really big into sports, as I mentioned earlier. And there's a whole thing of, you know, returning to sports, not returning to sports. And I think in hindsight, it'd be easier to say just like, hey, like we shouldn't return to sports. It's, you know, it's unsafe. It's people are getting cases and they could spread it easily and then they have their loved ones and family. But sports does so much for the economy. I couldn't give you exact numbers and everything, but even like collegiate level, I knew that if they were talking about it earlier during quarantine, if they had canceled, you know, football, that's free at a lot of major universities or even a, a university like Duke where basketball is their biggest sport. If they were to cancel those seasons and cancel the revenue and the fans, you know, the money that fans bring in and everything, like they're canceling not just their sport, but like all the swimming sports, track and field, uh, all these like small sports that don't make a lot of money themselves. You know, football and basketball at a lot of schools cover everything for the entire sports department. So that, you know, puts colleges into debts and they lose a lot of money and their, the whole system with them is different too. So it's just interesting that so many conversations like this have been brought up. I think, you know, the quarantine, obviously it's been tough on a lot of people, but I think in, at least from my perspective, I've learned so much about just, you know, whether it's the economy, uh, whether it's about healthcare, just how different systems work. And, you know, I feel like, cause we have a lot more time on our hands. Yes. But also too, like all these <laughs> different things are coming to light and you're like, wow, right. like that's, either that's kind of messed up or we're like there's probably a better way to do that or so it just gets the conversation started on a lot of different things that I would have never paid attention to had there not been a quarantine or a pandemic the one bright side I guess of the pandemic sure I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's um yeah so going back to you know your decision to college you attended Mills College in Oakland what yeah. led to the decision to move away from home from San Diego and go to the Northern California Oh, so that's interesting. Okay, so when I was in college, no, when I was in high school, um, we had our a couple of our teachers organized a college trip. So they basically took three charter buses full of 11th graders and said, we're going to drive from San Diego up the California coast to San Francisco, and we're going to stop at a bunch of colleges along the way. You're going to take two weeks off of school, and you're going to like go visit colleges because my my high school was not a school where there was like a lot of people who applied to college and so there was like this effort to like if we show them these colleges like maybe they'll learn a little bit about it and it'll make them like more likely to apply and want to go and get excited and all that kind of stuff um and so they organized this trip it was girls and boys and so we were like woo vacation like okay amazing like our boyfriends are gonna come with us like it was just this like it wasn't even like about the college trip, you know, it was just like a bunch of 11th graders being 11th graders. Um, and there was we we had stopped at all these colleges and I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't see myself going to any of them. Like we'd be there and I'd be like, I can't I don't want to apply to this school. Like I don't want to go. I don't want to live in this dorm. And then we're in Oakland. So like almost San Francisco, like almost the end of the trip. And one of the teachers organizers said we were stopping at a women's college. And everyone was like, Miss Bruner, no one wants to go to a women's college. Like, let's just sleep in. Let's skip this college visit. Like, we have boys on the trip. Why are we even going here? She had gone to a women's college herself. So she was like a big fan. Um, and I walked onto the campus and I was like, oh, my God. There was like creeks and waterfalls and eucalyptus trees everywhere. And I was like, it was like this little paradise. And I was like, I'm coming here. 
and they didn't have my major. I didn't like know anyone who knew anyone. Like it was in Oakland, California, which I knew nothing about, but it was like kind of in the middle of the hood. And I was like, this is my college. Like I'm totally going here. Um, and I did. And it was like, it totally changed my entire life going to that school. Like it is the reason why I am a public radio reporter. I took a, a public radio reporting class. Like, so, okay, so I wanted to be a journalist, right, since I was in third grade. And so, like, walk in, and I was like, I'd like to major in journalism. And the journalism advisor is like, um, we don't offer I knew they didn't offer journalism as a major, but um, I had told, like, you could create your own major. And so I was like, I want to create, like, a journalism major. And she was like, no, you shouldn't major in journalism. You, you don't need to major in journalism to be a journalist. You should major in something that makes you become a better journalist and I was like okay all right so I majored in sociology which is you know it made me a better researcher it made me a better interviewer Um, it made me like understand why people do the things that they do which I think made me a more like empathetic compassionate reporter which is really important to me like I think it's really important to kind of like put yourself in other people's shoes and not be judgmental and things like that. Um, And so I was I took this public radio reporting class and a couple months into the class, the professor was like, do you know what public radio is? And I was like, I mean, it's like the news on the radio. And she was like, yeah, Google NPR. Um, It's like this whole world. And then I just like fell in love with public radio and I never looked back. And um, I started like freelancing for the local I mean, we would do these like radio stories for like your class final. And then the professor would be like, can I air it on like my, you know, the the public radio station in San Francisco? And I'd be like, sure. And then the first story I did won this like national award. And yeah, and I got to go like they flew me to New Orleans and I was like 19 years old. And it was the first time I'd ever gotten on a plane. It was the first time I'd ever left California. I mean, I think I had been to like Nevada or something like that and Mexico, obviously. Um, but it was the first time I had gone on a plane. I like got on a plane by myself. I was at this like huge journalism conference with all of these like super important people. And I was like 19 years old. Like, what is happening? Um, but yeah, and that was just kind of like the start of it. And I never looked back. I stayed in radio, even though my mom wanted me to do TV. <laughs> Nice. Now, a lot of people don't know that there's a huge cultural difference between the Bay Area and like any other part of California. Yeah. Yeah. How much of it it was a culture shock to you and what specifically were you shocked by? Yeah. So I didn't I didn't know like where my school was like when we went on that college trip, I wasn't paying attention to the surrounding area at all. Um, And then when my mom and my dad and my sisters and my Theo dropped me off in college, I was like, what, what the heck? Like, it was like in the middle of East Oakland, which I love. It's, I mean, it's my favorite city in America. I love East Oakland. I like rep it all the time. Um, But it was, you know, it was like poor and rough and crime was really, really, really high. And it was not really like super safe to be a girl walking on the street by yourself. Um, And... So for a while, I didn't, like, leave the campus just because I was, like, 18. You know, I was, like, a little kid, and I didn't have a car, and I didn't, like, know what to do or whatever. Um, But once I did, I mean, you know, it was, like, months, right? And then, like, I started venturing out, and I got a job at, like, a game store 
that was like right next to my college and I'd like walk there and back, you know, um, and my coworkers would be like, you are walking to Mills? And I'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, you leave it. You get off at 10. Like, do not walk. And they would come back. Like my coworkers would do their shift, leave, come back, pick me up and drop me off because they were like, you should not walk around. And I was like, you guys, I'll be fine. It's totally fine. Um, yeah, such sweet like coworkers I had. Um, but anyways, besides all that kind of stuff, it was just like sideshows and like underground rap battles and like the best tacos I've ever had in my life. 22nd Street tacos, Taco Sinaloa, best tacos, best carnitas like on the planet. I'm 100 percent convinced. Um, and I'm Mexican. So like that's saying something, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so it was just like. I don't know. It was and it was like there was just so many different types of people there. Um, It was just like like there was so many more languages spoken in Oakland than I had ever heard spoken in San Diego. I'm I know there's like a SoCal, Southern California, Northern California, like rivalry. I'm I'm into both. It's California. I'm a California girl. I like both of them. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, too, that you mentioned the tacos, because that's a big thing, too, is like. San Diego County has the best Mexican food or like Los Angeles County has the best Mexican food. And then the Bay area claims to have the best Mexican food. So you, so you are in the side that like Oakland and at least that particular spot had the best Mexican food. I think probably LA has the best Mexican. It has the most LA's like Mexican street food scene. Mm -hmm. LA's Mexican food scene is most like similar to to what's what you see in like Tijuana or in like Baja California right like it's very Baja California like you might as well be in Baja California Mm -hmm. Mexico uh, when you're in LA in San Diego we don't really have like a ton of like taco trucks Mm -hmm. because we just crossed the border (laughs) you know so like it never really popped up we have like taco shops but they're not like Tijuana style tacos it's like something else. It's kind of like this mix of like Southern California and Mexican food or whatever. Right. Um, I think LA has it. Okay. But Oakland has like the one single best tacos in the world. Okay. This one place. <laughs> okay. Nice. And it's funny too, because I remember when I moved to Sacramento and lived there for college, that was a thing too, where if like, you know, I wanted to go out to eat with friends and be like, oh, let's just go to like a Mexican spot. But you learn there. I felt like at least growing up here in Orange County, like nine out of 10 Mexican restaurants here are like good. Like they're great. You know, you're going to leave pretty happy and satisfied. But I learned over there, there's like, there was a few Mexican restaurants. It was hit or miss. It was like, I would say like four or five out of 10. And I remember like leaving some places like that wasn't good at all. Like that was like, that was barely Mexican food. Like, what was that? You know? <laughs> and so it was like, those are how I feel in New York. <laughs> but in New York, like when I got to New York eight years ago, I was like, there were not, there was not like a huge Mexican scene, or at least I didn't know where they were. And I'd be like, these tortillas, like, oh my God, like it's barely, like there's terrible tortillas in New York. Like even if you try to make them by hand, it's like there's something in the water over there that is just like not good for tortilla making or something. Um, But yeah, in in California, in Southern California, you know that like you can go to any Mexican spot and it's Mm going to be Mexican food. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. And then I did get to travel a little bit and I know that I forgot the restaurant, but there was a little place in Mission District in San Francisco that I got to visit. And that place had like incredible Mexican food. 
but that was like yeah. the one outlier compared to like the spots that I got to visit. And, you know, obviously it's hard to visit every Mexican spot in Northern California and Southern California. But it was one thing I noticed was like a big difference from home is like, yeah, I can pretty much go to any Mexican restaurant. It's like a safe bet. But over there it was like, you got to cross them off the list and kind of learn from like where you've been and hear different people's like opinions. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like every time, you know, if I'm wherever I am for a story, I'm in like Alabama or Oklahoma or Kansas or like these tiny little towns. I always see a Mexican restaurant. Like Mexican restaurants are like everywhere. Like I've never actually looked, but I'm convinced that it has to be the most common restaurant in America. Mm -hmm. Like maybe excluding like pizza shops or something. Mm, Um, Like you're just, we're everywhere. We're like all over the place, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like very, go ahead. ahead. (laughs) (laughs) well i was gonna say like tacos are like super easy to eat too you know it's like finger foods not too messy they're pretty small you can get multiple if you want like feeling really hungry so they're just pretty like easy to eat and on the go kind of stuff yeah yeah after mills college what were some of your early uh journalism jobs or internships that you held after that yeah so i um my first so like i was I would do these stories for class and they'd be on the radio, you know, maybe like three or four or something like that. And then when I graduated, I got this fellowship that that same professor created. um, And it was just like a Mills and KLW reporting fellowship, which was the name of the station um, in San Francisco. And it was like a six month fellowship or a three month fellowship to cover violence in Oakland, Mm -hmm. um, in deep East Oakland. So it was like youth violence, community police relations, just covering things like that. And so we just spent like months just interviewing people. Um, and then like, we didn't even write anything. Like we were just like interviewing people. We had, um, we had these like, like reporting fellows, I guess we might want to call them today, where we basically got this, this one kid um, named D-Real and this other girl, girl named Akila. And we were like, okay, you guys are just like members of the community. You're young. Um, will you like, be with us while we're reporting and like teach us and make sure we're like not crossing any lines and not being disrespectful and things like that so it's just kind of like really like community-based reporting um but oh my god Noah I did the dumbest things when I was like a 21 year old reporter that I would never in my life Mm -hmm. do today like I remember I was like I want to know how how hard it is to like get a gun you know like how hard is it to like get my hand on a gun and so I was like, well, I'm just going to go and like drive around super deep East Oakland and like ask people where I can buy a gun. Right. Wow. This is like what 20, this is like what young people do. Right. This is why yeah. like young people should not be um, like held accountable, like as though they are adults, because like we do not have the thing in our brain that says like, no, that's a dumb and dangerous thing to do. Don't do that. Um, right. And so I was like, drove around and like got off. Um, and what was his name? Cheech Mac. That's what his nickname was, Cheech Mac. I'll never forget. And he was like, and I just go up to some guy and I'm like, hey, do you know where I can get a gun? And he's like, um, turn your microphone off and I'll show you. And I was like, all right. And then I like go into like, I like follow him down some street and he like opens some, either if it was his trunk or like a box or something. And he's like, what do you want? And I basically was like, I'm going to go as far as I can to like purchasing a gun without actually purchasing a gun just to see like how easy it is. Mm -hmm. And it was like minutes, you know, I mean, it was like a minute or something. It was like super, super easy. And I was just like, I just don't 
it's like not worth it to me yeah. <laughs> anymore. Like I really like my life. Yeah. I like don't want to put myself in like really dumb, dangerous situations. I mean, I still do it sometimes and I'm like, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely, um, I'm, I'm a more cautious reporter, I think now. Um, but yeah, so I covered violence in, in the community and like community police relations. Um, and then after that, I left Oakland. I went, came back to San Diego, and I was a producer, a morning edition producer for my local NPR station in San Diego. Okay. Did that for a couple months. Was waking up at like 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning wow. when I was 21 years old, fresh out of college. All my friends were like at bars, and I was like, I have to go to work, have to do the news. Like, it was awful. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, of course, you take the job that you can get mm. right um but yeah i only did that for a couple of months and then i got a fellowship with npr that took me to dc so i moved to dc and then i never came back <laughs> to <Wow>. california <laughs> i just kind of left for 10 years mm-hmm. but um yeah uh-huh. kind of backtracking to that oakland story how did that interaction yeah. end with the gun like he, he just opened the trunk and you're like oh okay no thank you but you know thanks for showing me or how did that end yeah so um I guess after after I asked him to buy a gun, I obviously like, I mean, I think I would have disclosed that I was a reporter pretty pretty early on, but I was just like, hey, so like I'm doing a story about how easy it is to get a gun. Do you want to talk to me about it? Like, can I turn my microphone back on? And he was like, sure. And then I did a whole interview with him um, about, you know, about why he w- would sell me a gun and like if he sold other people guns and why. And, um, you know, the issue was that like, gun violence was a big problem in Oakland and it was a little bit of like a why why do you want to be a part of this like Mm -hmm. thing that is like bad for the community um but I was very protective of how we talked about him in the story Mm -hmm. like I remember there was a time when my editor wanted was like oh he's a gun dealer and I was like he's not a gun dealer like he's just Mm -hmm. a guy who has guns and like some girl walked down the street and asked him if she could buy one. And he was like, well, sure. If you're in a, you want to give me some money, like, I guess right. I'll sell it to you, you know? But I was like very protective. Like I was like, he's not a gun dealer. Like he's not like a gun salesman. He's just, he had his, you know, and he was like willing to sell it to me. Um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I did an interview with him and then I stayed in touch with him, you know, and checked back in with him later on and met up with him several times. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Nice. How, how do you deal with that emotionally? Jumping forward a little bit to your most recent episode with NPR Planet Money, it was the getting out of prison sooner. Just how do you deal with like sometimes your rile of emotions? Because listening to the episode, I kind of got like a little sad, obviously, and like just hearing about like what had happened to that person. And, you know, and there's a few other like episodes that you have done or Planet Money has done. So how do you as a reporter, whether it's interaction with the gun salesman or, you know, people getting out of prison, how do you like stay in touch with your emotions and make sure you're not like too high or too low at any point? Yeah, you know, it's really weird. Like, I am an emotional person, and I get very attached to the people that I interview, Mm -hmm. Um, whether they're like someone who went to prison for 1,650 years because he had a little bit of crack cocaine on him, or it's like the guy who worked with the mafia to get everyone to recycle or whatever, whatever the story is. Like I, I'm a people person. Like, I just like, I'm like, tell me more. Like, how did you grow up? What was your life like? Like, I just, I get into this thing where I just like want to know about people. Um, and so I, 
it's never been like a problem where I feel like I'm not doing the story in like a fair or just way or like me, my emotions are getting in the way or anything like that. I think I have like the right amount of being protective of my sources. Mm-hmm. Like I have the right amount of like, no, like let's not say something about them that I don't feel comfortable saying about them. I'm the one that spent hours with them. Like I know them better than like the editor knows them, mm-hmm. you know, and, and your editor normally trusts you. Like they're like, yeah, you're, you're the expert in that person. If anyone has to be considered that. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think it's healthy to be like a little bit protective. Like sometimes people tell you stories that are like really personal and they don't have to tell you these things. Mm-hmm. Like with the Oklahoma story, it was basically about how like the United States has created this like system of putting every single person in jail for everything. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and how some states are now trying to like walk away from it and say like, okay, maybe we went too far on being tough on crime and maybe we need to put less people in jail for less things. Right. And so this guy, like his family, we went to his parole hearing, his family was there. They let us talk to them. They were crying. He called us from prison and told us like, I've been approved from parole. Like how we were like, how do you feel? And he's like, I'm still in prison. I'm waiting. The coronavirus has like slowed things down. And so these people are like opening up to us and letting us into these really private and intimate moments of like, the worst thing they ever did in their entire life. Right. And so like, of course I'm going to be protective of them. And of course I'm, my emotions are going to get involved a little bit and I'm going to, you know, make sure that like we're um, treating them fairly. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially cause like we're using their first and last name. You're going to be able to Google them, you yeah. know, and we don't like, we don't hide information. Like I was like, he had crack and a gun and money in a shoebox, and cops mm-hmm. found it. Mm-hmm. that's what he did. Like, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't say like, Oh, I don't want to say that he has a gun. Cause I don't want people to feel like bad or like think differently about him. Like you still give the information. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I get really attached to people. Like I, you know, I check in with them. Like I'm like, you know, like this one uh, guy who was in the story, his name's Jacquez. Um, I checked in with his sister and I was like, how are you guys doing? And she's like, Quez has a job. He's like doing really good. Um, I, I just want to know, like, I don't, um, the story doesn't stop after we hit publish, you know, like mm-hmm. you still want to know what's going on with these people that you spent all this time with. Right. Okay. So going back, we mentioned Planet Money a few times. You mentioned that you left for DC and then with a NPR fellowship, but then how mm-hmm. did the, enter, the opportunity come to work with NPR and specifically the Planet Money podcast? So I got this fellowship. Um, it was called the NPR Croc Fellowship. And basically you're like a national reporter and producer for a year. And they like fly you all over the country to cover national stories like a national reporter. Um, and then for three months, they put you in a station somewhere in the country. And you don't get to choose. Mm. They put me in Miami. I mean, I'm telling you, Noah, the luck that I have had. <laughs> I was like 23 years old living in Miami. They were like paying for my apartment. I mean, it was just wow. like pretty, pretty lucky. Um, and um, I mean, they paid for it for like three months, right? <laughs> um, and then when I was in Miami, I was working at a at the NPR station there as part mm-hmm. of the fellowship. They had a job opening and they were like, hey, we have this job opening. Do you want to apply and work in Miami? And so I did and I got the job. And so then I stayed in Miami for two years, two and a half years. And I was an education reporter. Mm-hmm. And then um, And then I got a call one day from the New York station and they're like, Hey, we heard about you. Do you want to apply to this job in New York? Um, at WNYC. And I was like, sure. 
Um, and so then I was at WNYC for five years, mm -hmm, five years, and I covered, um, I was like an investigative reporter. I covered like where the, what we call the social safety net or the safety net like fails people. So like kids who are in the foster care system, kids mm -hmm. who get tried as adults and are in the adult prison system, um, contaminated sites, like just places where you're like, someone should have stepped in here and didn't, right? Um, so I was covering that and then, you know, people, it's kind of a small world, public radio is a small world and so people hear about you and they're like, oh, like I, you know, I, my boss, he used to be at WNYC and so he like knew of my work from there and then there was a job opening and he was like, hey, do you wanna apply for this job with us? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and, then, and, um, and then I met everyone and I was like, uh, maybe like I don't know I was really not I was very happy with my job and I was mm -hmm. like getting all these really cool opportunities and um, they were letting me like host these live shows and um, I was very happy where I was um, but then I spent more time with the team and I was like oh this is like pretty cool and like I like I like these I like the team I like the people I like the the vibe you know it's like very important to me mm -hmm. that the work environment feels like cool mm -hmm. you know so like when they offered me the job I was like can I go and like hang out with you guys for a couple hours like I just want to see how you guys are yeah, like what yeah. if you guys suck and then I don't want to work <laughs> with you guys you know right um and so I just like hung out with everyone and I was like oh these people are totally cool and then I was like I accepted on the spot like okay. after that you know mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. but it's well, very back. important I always tell people like before you take a job like just just, I mean, if you need a job, take whatever job you get. That's the right. first advice I give. But if you can be a little picky, I mean, especially in journalism, it's like very, 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 very important that you like your editor and that mm -hmm. your editor trusts you as a reporter and that they trust your instincts and that they respect you um, because they're the ones who are going to determine like what stories you do and mm -hmm. what stories you don't do. And mm -hmm. um, I remember when I first got to Planet Money, I pitched a story about how the world is running out of sand mm. because sand is the main ingredient in concrete oh, okay. and glass is just melted down sand and all of the silicon chips that are in all of our electronics mm -hmm. they're sand wow. and the only kind of sand that works is like um, ocean sand river bottom sand it's like the grainy rocky kind of sand the mm -hmm. sand that's in the desert is too smooth and silky so you can't use it for construction like wow. the buildings wouldn't be up to code if you used sand from the desert in concrete like i don't know the building would collapse or something who knows um okay. and so um i pitched this story and they were like okay well where would you tell this story from and i was like well there's like because sand sand has become you know it takes millions of years for sand to form mm -hmm. thousands and sometimes millions of years so like yeah. once we use all the sand like, that's it. You just yeah. got to wait a couple more thousands of years for more sand to form. And so sand has become like this like commodity mm -hmm. that's like super, super scarce and everyone wants it and needs it. And mm -hmm. so there's sand mafias now. Like wow. people are getting killed, you know, all the time over sand. And the first case that like we really know about was this beach in Jamaica was stolen in the middle of the night mm -hmm. like all these Jamaicans woke up one day and came to the beach and they were like 
the sand is gone. Like all the sand was gone. Wow. And everyone was like, who took the sand? Like, this isn't like, it's not like you can't take it with shovels. Like you need like trucks, you know, like someone (laughs) stole a freaking beach. Like it's a huge deal. And so the United Nations was like, this is like the first case that we became aware of that like people were sneaking to beaches in the middle of the night and stealing all the sand. Wow. It was like the whole like helicopter and chase and like scientists and pebble forensics. And there was like all this crazy stuff involved. Um, and so my team was like, okay, we'll go to Jamaica and go to the stolen beach. And I was like, I just got here. You just hired me. Like, this is my first, you're going to fly me to Jamaica. And they were like, well, yeah, that's where the story is. And I was like, and I was just like, so impressed that they trusted me, you know, like they weren't like, oh, well, let's see what kinds of stories she does here first before we spend all this money to send her to Jamaica. They were just like, no, we, we hired you because we trust you. Mm -hmm. So like go to Jamaica. So then I invited like my sisters and my husband and I was like, let's all go to Jamaica and you guys can stay at my hotel. I mean, they didn't pay for them. They just met me there, you know, but I had like a free hotel. And so I took my sisters and my husband and it was great. And then I just, Mm -hmm. you know, I did all the reporting. But the point of that story is to say, like, you know, you have to like your boss and your boss has to like you Mm -hmm. and they have to like root for you and want good opportunities for you. Mm -hmm. Just like, that's what I really love about Planet Money and like all the stories that you guys have. Cause there's even an episode, I think this was like right before quarantine started, but it was about how like fries in the fast food industry, they, I don't know if you did this one too. I did that one. You did that. Okay. So it was like how they like spray a coat on fries. And it's like, you know, that's something that like uh, the average American eats like so many fries throughout their life. And like, they would never think about that. But I remember hearing that episode, I was like, Wow, like now I used to be like I eat my burger first and then fries, but like after hearing that I'm just like fries first. No. Yeah, like what? Fries. You eat your burger first and then your fries? Yeah, that but that is the worst way to do it. And I now I understand why it was the worst way to do it. Like growing up, you know, you get them like kind of soggy and everything. And I don't know, my, <laughs> but my parents always taught me like you gotta have the main deal first and then you can have like the dessert. You don't or the mix snacks. them, you don't do you don't do the like a bite of the hamburger and then a french fry, bite of the hamburger, then a french fry? No, it used to be oh finish gosh. the burger and then fries. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know, I was weird, but it, it was just yeah. super interesting to hear that podcast and how, you know, the difficulties of dealing with Uber Eats and, and Grubhub and all the, the different industry, you know, it's changing. Now people are just not dining there now. People are not just driving uh, drive through but now people are like delivering it 20 minutes away to someone and it could be like 30 minutes before they get the food. Yeah, the point of that story was that like there's all these team of teams of food scientists that are trying to make sure that the French fry survives fast food delivery because mm-hmm. like the French fry was designed to be eaten in the car out of the bag right when you go through the drive-through and not like when an Uber driver goes to this McDonald's and then that Burger King and then that Taco Bell to deliver like five different things mm-hmm. like they're gonna get there all cold and soggy yeah it's so weird these little like you don't even know that there's people who think about things like this right yeah. like there's all these teams of scientists who are like how can we make sure that the french fry doesn't get soggy by the time it gets to someone's door like okay uh but yeah because you know if everyone's getting cold soggy french fries maybe people will stop buying french fries that's kind of a silly story but it was fun yeah no, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun listening to that. So thank you for reporting that. But going back to your days in Florida, I was reading that you broke a story about how universities 
charged more tuition to those students that had immigrant parents or undocumented, I believe it was, parents. How does, how do you even like start the research or how do you even get like your initial beat on a story like that and begin to work on something like that? That's so interesting that you mentioned that one. So this was like when I first, um, so I was an education reporter in Miami mm -hmm. and you know, I wasn't from Florida, so I didn't know how anything worked or what the rules were. And I remember I just met this girl who was saying that she was being charged out of state college tuition. She was born and raised in Florida, lived in Florida, but they were charging her the out of state tuition rate, which is more expensive than the in-state tuition rate mm -hmm. because her parents were undocumented. Wow. And your financial aid is all based on like your parents' residency because you're mm -hmm. like a kid. Um, and she was like, why am I paying the out-of-state rate, which is so much more? I'm born and raised in Florida. And they were like, yeah, but your parents are undocumented. And I was like, that's not right. Like, that's, like, she's, in, in, she's, she's born and raised in this state. Like, yeah. how is she lives in Florida? How is that not in-state? And all of the people around me, like adults who were from there, were like, oh, that's just how it is in Florida. And I was like, yeah, but that's not right. Like, something is weird there. Something is wrong there. And they were like, no, that's just how it is. So I did this like really short one minute story, you know, like I do like 20 minute stories. At that time I did like eight minute and five minute stories. This was just like a little short, quick story. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, I believe, called me or emailed me. And they're like, hey, we heard this story on the radio. We're working on something um, similar. Can you put us in touch with the girl in your story? I think there was two girls in the story. And they, and I was like, sure. And I put them in touch with them and they represented them in this like class action lawsuit against the state of Florida mm -hmm. and won. And so the state of Florida had to reverse its like policy that they would charge out of state tuition to mm -hmm. people with undocumented parents. Right. And it was like the tiniest little story that I did that was just because I was like, well, why? Like, why does like that yeah. doesn't seem right and then some major law firm was like yeah that's not right like we're on it and then they won and so like you know like that's it's yeah um so sometimes it's just looking at things like it's you know like fresh eyes are important or can be important like if you grew up thinking that things are the way that they are you're like yeah that's just how things are and then it takes like an outsider to come in to be like that seems weird. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, sometimes things take a lot of research and sometimes it's just kind of like, I just have an idea and I just like go with it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that's but the cool thing about, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say to expand on that because I feel like that at the end of the day is kind of like what journalism is all about, especially like in its roots or at its core, right? Is to, to prevent these corrupt instances from happening and they're supposed to report things so that you know, later can get recalled out and something can get reversed like that. But I was just going to ask you as far as like the state of journalism now, and I feel like it's very attack journalism. It's very political now too. And I feel like the common person, like the average just everyday, you know, citizen or, you know, whatever person who lives in this country, they don't trust news right now. It's what, no matter what side you're on, they feel like the news is an unreliable source and that they're working with someone when in reality, like I said, journalism at its core is supposed to be the, 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 what is the term they use? I think muckrakers like that, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like expose the bad people and no matter what side those bad people are on. 
And so I was just going to ask you, is like, how do you feel about the current state of journalism? And do you see it trending upward, downward, or, or kind of staying the same for right now? Yeah, this is so, um, I'm so glad you're asking me this question. I am like constantly frustrated, like just on my social media feeds, mm-hmm. when people are like, they're just posting all of this, like they're just talking all this shit about like news and reporters. And I'm like, okay, I, like, yes, there are some like stories that you might hear where you feel like, wow, this is really sensational. This feels like whatever, you know, whatever. But like, it's so crazy to me that people are more inclined to trust some random guy on a couch telling you how it is, as opposed to journalists who work for established media organizations where if I were to get something wrong in my story, if I did it on purpose, if I like purposely told you something that wasn't true, I would not have a job. Right. You know, like we go through so much fact checking, like every line we spend, like, you know, some of my stories, it's like weeks making sure that like every single word is right. Even if it was something that happened in like 400 AD or 400 BC. Like I'm like, I email like the researchers at NPR, like what written documents do we have to prove that this thing happened in 400 BC? And they're like, oh, Thucydides, this like Greek historian. And you're like, (laughs) okay, great. Like we really like go back, 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 back to make sure that what we're saying is true and accurate and right and fair and all those kinds of things. Um, But like, I, I get it. I get that it's, now like the norm to not trust the media so like i like to tell people you know find a media source that you like and that you trust like just find one that you feel like that is like a real like media organization and you know don't listen to the other ones if you feel like they're too left or they're too right or whatever um but like you can't not trust like news, like all news reporters, like every single one, like, like, like the freedom, like the press is in the constitution. Like it is so important that you have people who can go up to the president of the country, whoever the president is, the governor of the state, whoever the governor is, the mayor, the department of health, the department of education, the department of transportation and say like, Hey, I want to see all of this information. Like Mm -hmm. you have, and they, they have to show it to us. Yeah. Like, they and then they give it to you like you know i could go up to the state of new jersey and say i want to know every single time that a minor was tried as an adult in new jersey i want to know why they were tried as an adult and i want to know what race or ethnicity them were and they for the last 10 years and they'll be like okay here's all the documents here's all the data and then i have to do the work and sort through them and look through them but like i did that and that's how i found out that 90 percent of all of the minors tried as adults in new jersey were black or latino And like being tried as an adult is not something that prosecutors have to do. Prosecutors get to choose. Do I want to try this child as a, as an adult? And 90% of the time that they wanted to try a child as an adult, that child was black or Latino. Right. And like, so like we have this like really cool, like superpower where we can just like ask government officials and elected officials and like departments and gov, you know, like governor's offices, Um, for information and they, you know, have to give it to us or we like find it without them giving it to us. Um, And so like there has to be some room in your consumption where you like trust someone. 
Yeah. You know, and if you don't, if you don't, I say like go to there's like independent fact checking organizations where they're like not left, they're not right, they're not journalists. If you don't like journalists, just like find someone who's not just like some random person on the media in the social media. Right. And like consume some accurate like reporting yeah. about what's going on in the world. Like you have to know about what's going on in your city, in your state, in your country, mm-hmm. at the very least, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, and it, it's, I think like the internet definitely kind of like made things a little suspect because whether it's on social media, Twitter, or like a YouTube, like anyone can just kind of, or even starting like a website, like a blog, right? And they can kind of present themselves as news, right? Like the onion, like the onion's a big thing. And I feel like because social media is like so like instant gratification, there's been so many times where like people just read headlines and I know the onion does this a lot. Well, they report like whether it's like a famous celebrity died or something like a little bit more serious, they'll just like report it and have like this funky headline that catches everybody's attention, but then they don't, and they, and they reshare it. They don't even read the article. They just see the, 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 you know, the article headline and the tweet that's attached with it saying so-and-so passed away or so-and-so did this without even reading the article to see how, you know, fact checking and, regardless of that stuff and i think it's so easy and accessible for just any average joe smo someone on their couch to start the youtube channel to start the website or to just to start reporting stuff from twitter without even i mean sometimes they are legit and sometimes they are actually doing the work maybe they are maybe they aren't but more often than not i I feel like it is a little suspect when people can trust those kind of blogs or websites or resources instead of actually you know trusting someone who works for a news station works for the newspaper or a magazine yeah. And I mean, I still like, I always say that media literacy, I think is going to be so important. Like if we don't start teaching people how to figure out what is accurate information and what is not accurate information, like we're going to be in some pretty big trouble. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause like misinformation is a huge problem. Like the conspiracy theories, like it is like people sometimes say things and I'm like, no, like that is not that is like not true you know like it's just and and like if we don't start teaching people like in school like do you remember like i don't know when you were in school where they they would be like wikipedia is not like a valid you know like entry like they would like try to teach us like what is like credible what is not credible um and i mean i don't know to what extent it's still happening but i feel like it needs to happen more and better like we need to teach people like these are websites that you can, for the most part, trust, like always be skeptical, but like, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, like NPR, yeah. like they're like established media organization. Yeah, exactly. And I know like in college, I took an intro to journalism class and they talk about that. They talk about how to look for a particular, like what are the, the signs of like a phony website or a phony right. reporter or something like that. But that should be something that maybe is even taught in high school or Maybe, you know, because not everyone has the luxury of going to college, but just making it like instead of a a optional thing, like making a requirement to learn in high school or college or community college or wherever you go to. Because like you said, the media literacy is going to be huge because if it goes at the rate that we're going at now, I feel like in five, 10 years, like it it could be really bad, like a really negative that we, I guess, stigma or I can't think of the right word for it, but just we could see like reporters and news sources and it's just going to be like, everything's out the window like everyone's like fighting against one another about who they can trust and whatnot and it shouldn't be like that these 
things are there to help us, the common citizen. There are facts. Mm -hmm. Like, facts are real. Facts exist. Um, Like, there's someone, some organization, some group that you should be able to turn turn to to get your facts. Like, Mm -hmm. not everyone is like there's not some conspiracy like people always say like the media is this like the media is that and i'm like who is the media like the media there's no such thing as the media right like i'm a reporter and i work for a public radio organization Mm -hmm. i'm not like when people say the media that's like that means like social media that means people who do like opinions pieces Mm -hmm. and commentary like rate like tv shows where they're just like giving their like political commentary and they're like analyzing like the political environment and things like that and then there's just like news reporters right and like Mm -hmm. i'm a news reporter that's what i am like don't call me the media i'm a news reporter (laughs) you know um and if i like get something wrong i won't be a news reporter Mm -hmm. like the stakes are pretty you know we have like rules and um you know like it's it's very like we're not allowed to express like our opinions about basically anything Mm -hmm. you know like you just have to stay out of it because we have to tell the story sometimes and they're like okay well you can't like you can't be like defund the police i support defunding the police you can't say that because like what even if you did believe it because what if they ask you to do a story on the defund the police movement right And like, you know, in order to get people to trust you, they need to know, like, I'm going to tell you this side of the story and I'm going to tell you that side of the story. Mm -hmm. And like, my opinions have nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's another trick that the other trick I tell people is like, look out for an article that is telling you like what to think and what to believe. Like if it's, if the writer is saying like, he's insane or like, this is crazy that we're doing this or like, he shouldn't do that. Like that's not an objective journalist, mm-hmm. right? Like the, someone you interview can say that, but like the reporter can't say that. Mm-hmm. Like the reporter interviews other people and gets their opinions and their thoughts. Like it's not about us. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's a tricky situation. I hope that, you know, the state of journalism is like, I had a really good professor in college about, or like really good, um, advisor because i work for the student newspaper so i had a really good advisor who was like you did yeah i did so that was like my first foot in the door (laughs) yeah and that that's like my earliest introduction with everything and you know i just remember like i was really inspired by him because he worked for some like big time magazines and stuff on the east coast but he came back to his alumni and wanted to teach and you know he he was a little bit older but he was just very passionate about like news and i i remember some Mm -hmm. kids went into that class thinking like, oh, like this is going to be like a cakewalk thing. But he like expected the best out of you. He always pushed, you know, for the hardest. His name is Stu Van Erisdale. So, you know, shout out to him. But yeah, I just, I I hope like just the common like society, like we can all like just have a more common ground on like media or not media, sorry, like reporters, news and exactly what they do and like who to trust and not to think like all they're bad, you know, and it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy time that we're living in. Yeah, it's crazy when like, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a little scary, right? Mm -hmm. Like if people stop trusting a bunch of forms of information, Mm -hmm. or believing things that come from like, not credible, 
like people or sites or whatever like it's just it's a it's dangerous like just you know you can't believe everything you read on the internet like it's just right. as simple as that you can always find something that supports whatever you want mm -hmm. like you know like you can find something that says like the world is flat yeah the world's not like it's not but some people believe it is yes and, um you will be able to find a bunch of things on the internet that say that that support your beliefs you know mm -hmm. so you just have to be like a little bit um skeptical yeah and it, it takes effort you know it's not going to be like the easiest thing to to fact check and stuff like that but it's important that you do because you know it, it's because you it doesn't matter who you are whether you're like a 15 year old kid or a 40 year old and you're posting something on social media, whether it's Facebook or uh, Instagram or Twitter, you know, you have so many followers and that could impact someone else's decision. Even if it's like one or two people that can, they can maybe repost it. And then that affects five to six of their followers. And it's just this kind of like never ending trend of like, okay, well that's their beliefs, even though that's not necessarily the right thing or like it's not factual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, I know it's hard. Mm -hmm. And just like with all the, the protests, especially after like George Floyd, there was a few in Orange County that I wanted to attend as like a reporter, as a journalist and like kind of mm -hmm. report things. But I remember I had a friend that was like anti it, like, you know, like, oh, you shouldn't be taking video. Like, you shouldn't be taking pictures. And I'm like, well, I'm not here to like post them. But it is important. I think for me, like my angle was like, it's important for me to take this because let's say it does turn violent. But if no one took videos of like, maybe let's say it was the police or somebody else, right? Like, let's say for one instance it popped off, but for like 99% of it, it was peaceful. And it was just like this weird altercation. Like it's easy for like a news company to take that video, uh, a TV station or someone on social media to post a video of someone doing something bad to start it and kind of portray a negative light. And I think that happens a lot is like, oh, like all these protesters are bad, right? Especially at the beginning of like Minnesota and George Floyd, they, pro they, they grouped protesters and rioters as the same people. Right? All these people who are looting, breaking into the stores were also protesting Black Lives Matter and for George Floyd's uh, you know, murder. So I just felt like it's important to have people like just taking stuff, whether they post it or not, to kind of tell you like both sides of the story and to give you an accurate depiction of what happened. Yeah, what, I mean, in like the simplest definition of a journalist, it is to witness things that are happening in the world or in, your, in the country, mm -hmm. right? Like we're just supposed to be there to see what's happening. Mm -hmm. That's why whenever something happens, they're like, journalists, go, go yeah. there, tell us what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like there have been times when I was, before I was at a podcast, when I was more like breaking news and like something would happen and you'd be like at a restaurant, like drinking a glass of wine and my editor would be like, there's a shooter mm -hmm. in a mall, like, can you go? And it'd be like, let me eat some bread real quick and like, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was into my glass of wine but like sure give me a second and then i'll go you know or like mm -hmm. um i mean there was like the number the boston marathon bombing yes yeah so when that happened the brothers who did the bombing um their sister lived in new jersey mm -hmm. and i was in new york and they were like oh go go to the sister's house like in case the brothers are there because the brothers had like fled or something like that. And I show up and like the SWAT team is there and like, I don't know if it was SWAT team it was like, keep like, 
masks and shields and like whatever. And I was there with like wow. jeans and a microphone. And I was like, can I, can I get a helmet? Can I get whatever they got? Like, why am I here in jeans yeah. and my microphone? Mm-hmm. And like everyone else is like in full right gear, protective mm-hmm. gear. Um, and yeah, it's just to like witness mm-hmm. and, and then ask questions. Right. So, um, yeah, you should go and mm-hmm. take pictures. Like if right. you're a journalist and that's what you want to do, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's mm-hmm. the job of a journalist. Right. Now I do want to ask you too, because you're a, a really accomplished reporter, whether it's winning an award in 2017 or getting finalists in a few other awards, but was there ever a moment in your career where you're like, that just kind of really like wowed you and took you back and you're like, wow, I really did that. Or I was able to accomplish such a, such a feat. Yeah, the awards are cool because the awards are kind of like, it's weird. Like some people hate journalism awards because they come every year. Like every year you apply for journalism or you know, your organization applies for journalism awards. Um, I've gotten some like pretty cool ones, I think. Um, and they always feel like, I don't know, it kind of feels a little bit like yearbook shout outs. You know? <laughs> okay, like yeah. we're like end of the year, like I got cutest couple or like something, you know, it's just like, this is like, I got this. And it's always like, you always get an award for reporting on some like horrible thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I got this great award because 90% of black and Latino kids were being tried as adults in New Jersey. Like that sucks. But you know, I mean, I did, I did like a whole um, five part series on kids in prison and I went to Germany for wow. it and looked at went to prisons in Germany to like find out how the U.S. could maybe improve its prison system Mm -hmm. for minors but anyways um so the awards are like cool but sometimes you just like get um like cool things to happen for people like you Mm -hmm. affect change like you know there are like the when I went to the grocery store and I did the story about um grocery store workers like getting $300 a week to work at a grocery store and put their lives in danger. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, if you're unemployed or if you were unemployed, you were getting $600 a week yeah. to sit at home and be safe. So you were making twice as much money as the women at the grocery store mm-hmm. to do nothing. Like that seemed not super fair. And mm-hmm. all of these listeners like emailed and tweeted and they were like, Hey, I want to use some of my unemployment money and I want to donate it to like those women who are at their grocery store or like, and they're like unemployed and they don't, you know, it's not like, yeah. <laughs> like people were sending like, Oh, I'm just going to get $50. I'm going to give a hundred dollars mm-hmm. or I'm going to use some of my stimulus check to like, you know, whatever. Um, I did a story a while ago about um, women, about people who live in really tall buildings in New York city and don't have air conditioning. I think it's really, 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 really hot in New York city and you can like die of heat exhaustion. And if you're older, um, it's like very, very dangerous. And there's this woman and she didn't have an AC unit and she like had a really kind of really, her apartment was really hot. It was like very dangerous. And all these listeners called in and they're like, we want to buy her an air conditioner. And like, she got like three air conditioners and I would like call her and I'd be like, Hey, a bunch of people want to like buy you an air conditioner. And it's just like, there's such little things but you're just like oh I'm so like that's not the point of journalism it's not like oh we Mm -hmm. hope good things happen for these people um but like obviously it's nice when Mm -hmm. listeners hear someone's story and they feel like so attached to them or connected to them just from the five minutes they heard them on the radio yeah and they're like I want to do something to help that person like that's super cool Mm -hmm. um but there was this one this one um series that I worked on which was on the MS-13 gang, Mara Salvatrucha. Okay. Um, and there were all these kids in Long Island, New York, 
who were being accused of being MS-13 gang members for like very, very silly things. Like they're wearing a Versace belt and the police in Long Island were like, oh, Versace is like, that's like what the MS-13 gang wears. They wear Versace oh. belts. They wear Marilyn Monroe t-shirts. That's like their thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay. Or like they wear Aeropostale. There was like some, some clothing brand. Yeah. And they were like, that's like a Mara Salvatrucha thing. And I was like, that's like a high school thing. That's just like <laughs> yeah. what kids in high school wear. It's not a gang thing. Yeah. And so all of these kids were getting detained. Wow. Like accused of being MS-13 gang members and put in detention, like held um, because of like really flimsy evidence. Like I was like, did you see them like doing anything? It's like, oh no, they wore a Gucci belt. Oh, he drew horns on a, his school notebook. And yeah. the horns are the sign of Mara Salvatrucha. Whoa. So it's like not great um, evidence. Mm. And I did all the, the, the stories on this. And then um, a bunch of those kids got released from immigration detention. Wow. And there was like this whole, like, I think it was the ACLU was involved and they probably did most of the work. I'm sure they did most of the work, whoever the group was involved. But yeah, like all these kids that I interviewed who were in jail for things that like they shouldn't be in jail for, Mm-hmm. Um, got released after months of being held and told like you're gonna get deported because you're an MS-13 gang member. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I just, I just drew bull horns on my school notebook because yeah. our school mascot is the devils. So like horns are part of our school mascot. Like it's yeah. not a huge. And they were like, those are bull horns. That's a gang sign. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Wow. So you've interviewed people like in prison whether it's through that story that you were just telling me or through planet money and some of the stories that i've listened to you on the podcast how does that work like particularly like do you just you know if you want if you wanted to interview someone in a prison like how does that process work yeah so it's weird like sometimes you go through groups of like you know certain groups that are like will put you in contact with like there are some advocacy groups for example that are like oh we're in touch with a bunch of kids who are in prison um or like you find their lawyers and you're like Mm. hey you know, you're their lawyer, lawyers have access to their clients. And so I say like, Hey, next time your client calls you, can you like three way me mm-hmm. or, you know, something like, like you can do it that way. Um, or you can go to the prison and visit them. It just takes longer. You have to like sign in and you have to be like, Hey, I'd like to meet this person. I'd like to go into the jail cell with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of depends on, on how you do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Well, going forward, what are some goals for you in the year 2020 on the journalistic side, as well as some of the things with Planet Money that you plan on accomplishing this year? Oh my God. Goals for 2020. I don't know. Survive it. (laughs) (laughs) Come out of 2020 in one piece. I don't know. I don't think I have like, I think 2020 is just like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, just hang on. <laughs> just hang on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I so my personal goal was to move. I was like, I'm going to leave California, but I'm going to be back in 10 years. Like in 10 years, I'm going to be back in California. And this August is 10 years since I've been away from California. And four days ago, I moved back to California. So I like oh. accomplished that personal life goal of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and work goals, I mean, I think I it's not like a major work work goal, but like I always try to put voices on the radio from like, you know, like a variety of voices from the radio. Like I want you here to hear from like Latinos about like great things that are happening 
not mm-hmm. just like bad things that are happening like uh, the experts like i want them to be like a range of like men and women and people of color and young and not right. so young like i just want you to hear as many voices and meet as many people as i can possibly introduce you to mm-hmm. and help you feel like you're connecting to someone somewhere else mm-hmm. you know yeah exactly it's all about perspectives like the more you hear from like one side of the story i think that like one, it tears down like stereotypes and any prejudices you may have against that certain group, whether it's race, religion, or age even. But yeah, that's important because to have the proper representation through reporting and news and media and podcasts and stuff like that, I think you guys do a great job of that. Yeah, we could be better. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone can be better. You know, it's so easy. Like, you know, we're an economics podcast. And so like a lot of the economists are like white men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it would be very, very, very easy to only interview white men mm-hmm. for, as our experts. Like you kind of have to like, be like, no, like we need to like look for other people too. Like we need to bring a diverse variety of voices onto, you know, our show. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, it's, you, it's like a decision that you have to make to try to like make sure you're like, you look and sound like the country. Yeah. Right? Like the country is filled with all kinds of voices and like we exactly. should hear from all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we're work- we're trying, you know, we do our okay. best. Mm-hmm. So this is an, uh, an NPR related question, but not specifically about Planet Money. Because I do listen to a lot of other shows like Hidden Brain, uh, Life mm-hmm. Kit. It's been a minute with Sam Sanders. Do you oh, get Sam's to- my friend. Oh, nice. He's a homie. He's <laughs> He was a Croc fellow also. He was a Croc fellow. The, the fellowship that I got, he got it okay. the year before me. He's great. Oh, I love Sam nice. Sanders. Okay. So how, do you have any particular favorite shows that you also listen to from NPR and do you get to interact with them? How, obviously with through COVID, I know everyone's working remotely, but before that, were you guys like in a shared office or is it kind of everyone's different? Yeah. So the podcast, a lot of the podcasts are in the New York bureau. So where they have like a DC bureau, a, an LA bureau, a New York bureau, and then like a bunch of other little bureaus, um, all over the country and in other countries. Um, in the New York bureau, there's a lot of the podcasts are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we like, we appear on each other's shows sometimes like Sam Sanders is on one of my shows recently. Um, I've been like one of the guests on his show. Um, sometimes we ask each other to edit each other's scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, just cause like sometimes it's nice to get the perspective of someone else from another mm-hmm. show. Um, I am recently like very, very, very into history. Oh, okay. I think because I'm realizing that I didn't learn history very well. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so everything is like brand new information to me. And I'm like, what? That's yeah. how that started. Like, and I'm a big fan of the origin story. Like, but why did we, why did we do it that way? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been listening to Throughline, mm-hmm. which is one of the history podcasts at NPR. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like okay. and and I like like there's a show called Rough Translation which sort sort of like bridging the gap like us and them like we're all kind of like I can be in San Diego and someone else can be like in Palestine but like here's this one thing that we have in common or you know it's, right. it's sort of it's sort of that kind of um show if I had okay. to describe it a certain way okay um yeah okay well this has really been awesome before we end the show I do like to ask you know, some quick hitter questions just to kind of get the audience to get to know you a little bit more. Okay. um, Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. If you could have any toppings on a pizza, what would it be? 
bake, bacon and jalapenos. Okay, nice. That's the best pizza combination. <laughs> okay. If you could talk to any person in history, dead or alive, who would you want to conversate with? No. I don't know that one. No? I can't even imagine. Who okay. would you do? There's a few people. I was really inspired by Muhammad Ali. I have a few posters of him in my room. Uh, Malcolm X, too. Those are like, and then obviously like sports, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, someone like Hank Aaron would be really cool, too. So there's, there's a few people, you know, and I'm sure I can go down the list. I was like a big history person. So even someone like Cleopatra or like Julius Caesar, I think would be like really interesting to, to talk with. But uh, I yeah. like asking that question because I feel like everyone has different interests and it's kind of cool to see. I mean, like, I don't, I, there's like, I can't even imagine whittling it down to like two or three or four people. Mm -hmm. It's to have a conversation with them, you said? Yeah. I think Cesar Chavez brain. might be one of them. Mm, okay. Nice. Hmm. <laughs> I kind of want to hang out with Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm, okay. Supreme Who Court Justice. Like, I just, the Supreme, one of the Supreme Court Justices. Mm -hmm. um, I just, like, I read this one um, letter that she wrote. She's alive. <laughs> but um, she, uh, she wrote this letter when she had graduated from law school. And they were, like, asking her to donate money, like, as an alumni. Mm -hmm. And the letter from the law school was, like, for all of, like, like him and he like saying that like all the students were like men like the whole letter said like he and him and he and him and he and him and she like scratched it out like crossed it out and put or her like or oh. her her or, like and all of them because she was like i'm a girl and i went to law school and then like mailed it back to them with like a donation or something like that and i was like oh my god what a badass move <laughs> yeah that's like so great i would i just like loved that little thing um okay yeah Okay, nice. Yeah. So, so those are two good uh, responses for that. So you did have someone, you just had to think. I mean, if like I had to choose anyone, it would probably be like my grandpa, mm -hmm. you and know, like, yeah. Okay. A lot of people, yeah, a lot of people say that too, like family members that, you know, I was lucky that I still have three of my grandparents around. So but like, I know Aww. some people have said that, because they haven't got to meet their grandparents or an uncle or an aunt or whoever it may mm -hmm. be, you know. Okay. Yeah. So moving on to the next question, let's say you're okay. stranded on an island, but food and water are provided. What are three things that you would like to bring to pass the time? Oh my God. Can, is, can you like, can there be like a never ending supply of books? Is that like a valid answer? Yeah, that's, or does yeah. it have to be like one book? No, it could be a yeah, never ending supply. Okay. It, I don't know if it would be to pass the time, but I would a hundred percent need chapstick. Okay. Okay. And you said water's provided. Yeah. Food and water. Like fresh water. Yes. A blanket because I'm always cold. Okay. <laughs> like always cold. Okay. Like a All very right. warm, like like the Mexican blankets with like the mm. lion on it. You know what yes. I mean? You know what I'm talking like about? There's, there's a little hole in the middle, right? Is that the one you're talking about? No, no, no. The ones that are like an eagle and a like tiger or okay. something, like the really thick ones. Like yes, the ones okay. hanging up all around me. Okay. These aren't the Mexican ones. <laughs> <laughs> How do you survive those uh, New York winters then? That's why I left, man. <laughs> I was like, I can't. I have a, I have like a, like kind of what I would call a cocoon jacket mm -hmm. that is like cut my head to my ankles. And I wow. just kind of like waddle around everywhere. <laughs> and I'm just in this like little cocoon and I wear like nine pants and three socks and five wow. shirts and sweaters and jackets. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I like warm weather. Mm-hmm. 
So how does that work though? Like when you go like into a restaurant or like the office, like you have to like take off those yeah. nine pants and. Yeah. No, you well, keep the nine pants on, but you take <laughs> off the, the five jackets and sweaters. Wow. It's very difficult to, I mean, like being in a restaurant in the middle of winter in New York is just like filled. There's just like piles of coats everywhere. Yeah. I remember one of my friends visited me for like January. It was like around New Year's. And she was like, why do they call this the fashion capital of the world? Like, you can't even look cute. You're just like wearing boots and scarves and jackets. And I was like, yeah, no, you can't even wear like the cute boots and jackets. Like you need to wear like the industrial, like super, <laughs> so super warm jackets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question. If you could have any kind of exotic pet, what would it be? Oh, no. I don't think I want an exotic... I mean, I, I don't support having mm. uh, exotic pets, but... Oh, my gosh. Or, like, what would be your spirit animal, I guess you could say? Hmm. I don't know. My spirit animal? I think I knew this at one point. What's yours? I really like alligators. That's That was, like, as a kid, I just really liked how when you learned how like alligators have been around for like centuries and like millions of years, I thought that was really cool. And they're like, alligators are terrifying. They are terrifying, but they're in water. You, they can survive on land and they eat mm -hmm. almost anything. So it was just, that, that was like always my go-to as a kid. I was just like really attracted. Like the alligators and crocodiles are similar species. Yeah. yeah. Don't have a pet alligator. No, um, <laughs> feel like it's going to end poorly for you. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I guess my, like my spirit animal is definitely a lion king of the jungle you know all that kind of stuff if i could have like a little tiny little baby lion for a little bit and then give it back to like the wild or an appropriate uh place i would okay i guess yeah okay. lion. nice and then sorry last... i'm not giving you quick answers no it's okay they're they're meant to like make i, I call them quick hitters but just because i don't have a better word for them but they are supposed to like okay. kind of like make you think a little bit outside the box okay and then the last question I ask is, uh, what, what, what is some advice that you would give to your younger self? Wow. Deep. Um, I don't know. I feel like I, hmm, I feel like very confident in the way that I have lived my life. Mm-hmm. Um, including like the mistakes that I've made in my life, you know, I just feel like it's all like part of it. Um, I don't know. I have no idea what I would say to my younger self. What I don't know. What would you say to your younger self? I what I would I, I would say a lot of things, but I think the biggest message was to do things because you want to do them. I think a lot. Of, I was a big people pleaser, especially in high school. Oh. I got really caught into that. And like you said, too, like I wouldn't change anything, but that's something I mm -hmm. would just kind of like some advice because I really struggled with that. And I remember like switching friend groups because they didn't like what I was portraying. But I, I just I felt like I really struggled to be myself until I was like 20, 21 in college mm -hmm. already. And, and obviously you, you mature. Everyone matures differently. But I just felt like I was always people pleasing, whether it's for the family at home or for the for friend groups at school or ex-girlfriends, whatever it may be. I was just not being my true self. So that's the mm -hmm. advice I had to give myself, you know? Interesting. I feel like I've done the opposite. Like, I'm like, I do what I want. <laughs> I feel like maybe my advice should be like to please people a little bit more. Or, um, not. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I can't even, um, 
imagine what I would tell my younger self. Like, I'm trying to think like whether it would be career wise or my personal life. Um, mm -hmm. I think like being easy on yourself is very important and not like being hard on yourself for things you could have done or things you didn't do or things you did do that wish you didn't do. Like you just have to like let yourself grow up mm -hmm. and you will not make the same mistakes when you get older. Um, but I mean, I kind of, I think I did that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much again for, you know, sharing all this wonderful wisdom and all the work that you do to at NPR. Thank you for that. I continue like really liking your shows and Thanks. everything that you do. And, you know, just again, really appreciate you taking the time for doing this interview and, you know, best of luck in the year 2020 and going forward career-wise, personal life-wise and everything. Hey, you too. I think it's, um, I love supporting fellow Latino podcasters. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you asked me to come onto your show. And it was so nice to like meet you. We were just tweeting yeah. about Planet Money stories and then like, look at us now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so great. It's awesome. I love that this happened. Mm -hmm. And that was nice. It was nice to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Of course. And good luck to you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Boom, that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode, episode 119 of the My Mike and I podcast. And hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and review if you really like the show. Also, if you really like any of the other shows, tell people what you think about it and leave a rating and review that way too. Now, if you're not listening on Apple Podcasts, you're listening on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, just be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button. And if you can, tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend about the podcast and maybe, you know, just grow the podcast word of mouth. I'd greatly appreciate that. If you're on Instagram, be sure to follow at my period Mike and period I for all the latest graphics, all the latest snippets, all the latest YouTube clippings of the podcast and the My Mike and I podcast. And I also do some thoughtful Thursday stuff and just trying to, you know, spread the platform a little bit more and, and grow organically, which I accomplished so far since starting the page earlier this year, which has been a lot of fun. Also, you can follow me, my personal account on Twitter, at underscore Noah Alvarez. I have a lot of sports takes, movie takes. Well, I guess there's not too many movies because there's not a lot of movies out right now. But I promote a lot of my podcasts, promote a lot of my articles on there too, and just interact with different friends, react to different memes and things in the news. So yeah, be sure to give me a follow. And of course, guys, thank you again for tuning in to another episode. And uh, thank you, Sada Gonzalez, for being a part of this episode. Thank you, Generic Sports, for producing Instrumental. Thank you for Vince Correa for designing the logo and helping with so many of the graphics. And, you know, as I always say, guys, to wrap off the show, make sure you chase dreams, not checks. Continue to strive for your goals in this wacky 2020. But make sure you also emphasize on taking care of your mental health, self-care, self-love, all that kind of good stuff. And I'm here if you ever need it. You know, I may not be able to help you directly. But if you reach out to me on those two social media platforms, I hope that I can point you in the direction of someone that may be able to help you. And so, yeah. Uh, that being said, this is going to wrap it up for episode 119 of the podcast. I'm Noah Alvarez, the host of My Mike and I, signing off. Till next time.